0: All right, Dave. Oh,
1: my God.
2: We had to write a joke real oh. quick, but I got it. Joke time. Did we miss out on Mr. and Mrs. Pac-Man's impressionist masterpiece? In honor <laughs> of By the Sea, what real-life couple should have made a movie together?
0: Wow, that was really good. Um, I'm Katie Rich, and I think Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes's version of By the Sea would have been even more perversely fascinating than the real one.
2: Hey, it's me, Dave with the Seven, a dance movie with Johnny Depp and Jennifer Grey for that brief moment that they were, like, engaged in 1989. I also had to Google that year.
1: I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with Ryan Reynolds and Scarlett Johansson, the couple that, that didn't make it. Were they married?
3: Yeah. Yeah. They were married. That's Wait, Briefly. So they would have been had to be This has to be couples that already broke up. Well, no. Uh, no, I think they okay, should be good, couples. They my, had to have been couples at some point. Okay, good. And because these two,
1: my answer. Yeah, these two is, were a couple, uh, and they should have made like a romantic comedy together. I True.
3: agree. I also feel like my answer is one that I will trot out whenever we have a couple oriented question. Uh, my favorite celebrity couple to imagine their home life Joanna Newsom and Andy Sandberg.
0: Great answer. I'm
3: surprised you <laughs> didn't go Spike Jones and Sophia Coppola. it's it's
0: podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 95 for Tuesday, November 10th, 2015. We are rounding out the last few months of the year of our Time Lord, Dr. Emmett Brown. Before we get started, uh, we have several re- new reviews, but uh, we're going to choose just one of them to share with you guys this week. David, who's the, what's the lucky S- review? Yes,
3: so that if uh, you the rest of you fail to review us... Or give us new reviews in the future, we and also
0: self- so we don't bore you so much with self congratulation in the very this beginning. Well, just not
1: self
3: congratulation; it's becoming.
1: It's like part of the community.
3: It's, it's, it's into true. the show. It started as self congratulation and became <laughs> so much more. A bug became a feature. <laughs> uh, we're we're going to go with um, Silver Whatever, who is a longtime listener of the show and we came made, to our
1: live show. Way, came way to our back, live in. show.
3: Uh, we're all uh, a big fan of his, uh, shall not be named. I would have thought that I might have nailed down the particular of each host's viewpoint ages ago. But recently, I found myself thinking that David is the contrarian, Dave the geek, and the like was too simplistic a read. Here's my breakdown based on the primary concern of each host. <laughs> Katie tends to look at how a film succeeds being a combination of art and entertainment. She respects films that hit that sweet spot, like Magic Mike and Back to the Future. Mm. Dave analyzes the systemic birth of a film. How does this film fit into the franchise? What decisions in the studio led to the film's choices? Why can't I get all the extras in one package? David is almost a pure auteurist, valuing artistic vision and directorial choices above all the other aspects of the film. And then there's Patches, the most esoteric of the hosts. The strongest through line for him seems to be if the movie was successful in making him feel something. Whether awed by spectacle, laughing with a film, or just deeply moved, these things tread to tend to hold the most weight, making him the hardest to predict. I realize this all sounds like pretentious nonsense, and maybe it is, it the show is really good. <laughs> if you like film and like thinking about film, this podcast will only frustrate you in that you can't join in on the discussion. Well, if you or leave us a they? review, yeah. you can.
0: Or just talk to us on Twitter. Or just talk to us too. on Twitter.
3: We've decided to uh, use our Twitter account, which is uh, at F-I-T-W-R, to retweet all the things that we write over the course of the week a lot more. So we'll be a part of your lives even more than we already are. Forever.
0: Mmm, can't get rid of us now.
1: All right, so this weekend on Netflix premiered a new television show from Aziz Ansari, who I kind of thought was falling off the face of the earth. Is that just me that he kind of no. went away? Did you away, miss like, his book? On, he was on a book tour no, for like the no, past No, this is yeah. before his book. This is before his book. This was before Parks and Rec actually ended. Now... I think previously on the show, I discussed how I kind of lost track of Parks and Rec for whatever reason. I didn't stick it out to the end. But even while watching Parks and Rec regularly, Aziz kind of fell into the background of that show. I don't know what happened. He just didn't seem that important. His storylines with like Entertainment 720 or whatever didn't seem that interesting, all superfluous, more Amy, more Amy. That's all I could think with Parks and Rec. Um, and Aziz seemed to just go away. He was so hot for a little while, especially when he did Randy.
0: Randy. Um,
1: in, in, was that funny, people? Yeah.
0: It was, Randy. 2009. Randy. And that was at Randy. the very like beginning of Parks and Rec.
1: Right, so he was exploding Randy. at a certain point. And I, and I don't know what happened. He kind of fizzled out. And then all of a sudden, this year, he has his book, Big seller. Um, And he has Master of None, this new show on Netflix. Um, 10 episodes, 10 half hour episodes. Um, Very, very him. You know, I think a lot of the episodes are are where the show is being compared to Louie by a lot of critics. I don't know if that's totally apt, and we'll get into that in a second. I think this is more girls ish, but really what it is is more Seinfeld ish. It's more just take a comedian and what is their stand-up like? What is their POV like? And just make that into a television show. Make those stand-up bits into a sitcom. And for Aziz, it's, you know, walking around in these kind of beautiful New York uh, scenes and, uh, and observing things, observational comedy, uh, a lot like Seinfeld. And that is based, that's what the sh- show boils down to. It's Aziz writing with this guy, Alan Yang, who worked on Parks and Rec, um, and I believe
3: Alan Yang is—is is he in the show? No, he, that is uh, Kelvin. His Yu. character Kelvin Yu, is sorry. represented in the show, yes, uh, strongly in the second episode in particular. It doesn't really—I've seen the first seven. He hasn't really shown up again in meaningful ways. But uh, that is not well, his
1: buddy Brian? Alan Yang. Or, De- or yeah. Aziz plays the this Asian. guy Dev,
3: basically yeah. a fictional version of him, and this There's guy Kelvin U plays yes, as Brian, uh,
1: the who. show would identify him. <laughs> right, exactly. Which it's definitely going out of the way to do. So yeah, this core group of friends: Aziz Ansari, Kelvin U, uh, Eric Wareheim, and this girl uh, Lena Waithe, I believe, uh, are this pack of four friends in Brooklyn. Um, and I love that Eric Wareheim, according to Aziz, in many interviews, is just playing the token white guy, of course. Uh, as we see in so many sitcoms. um, And they're just roaming Brooklyn being kind of 30-somethings and and figuring life out. Now, I think what's interesting is we're all in this bubble. We all uh, live in New York, unless you're Dave. You lived in New York. You lived the Brooklyn life for a little while. Um, And I'll be most interested to hear what you think of this because you're you're now removed. But (laughs) this is a rambling show that's just full of observational comedy. um, And it's beautifully shot. Uh, James Ponsult who directed End um, oh, of the spectacular Tour. Now, uh, the spectacular
0: Now. And Spectacular
1: Now. Directed the pilot, and he directed the third episode and maybe a few more, I'm not exactly sure. Eric Wareheim directed some. Aziz directed some. It's very fun. Um, but um, it's and uh, uh, Lynn Shelton directed some. Oh, well. wonderful. Yeah, well, she's oh, all over awesome. TV now. Um, and, but it has this, it's, like, it's such a beautiful show. I believe it's shot in anamorphic, like widescreen. Mm-hmm. You just don't see this, and I keep wondering while I'm streaming the show, like why are more... Dramas or comedies, not this beautiful. It just looks great. Uh, but but the what I what brings me back to it, you know, binge watching it on Netflix um, is the strong voice, is the reality of it. Uh, I think across the board, most critics are, are really digging this show, and maybe it's appealing to them because it's not. Sick comedy. It's it's just true to life comedy. Now I will say, Esquire's critic panned the show because it was there were no Is that laughs. Where you left? There were no laughs, according to <laughs> the critic at Esquire, which made which made me laugh. He flipped um, his rolling chair
2: and he's yeah. like, "I'm out." Matt Patches loves <laughs> Master Matt Patches of None. Will
0: not stand for this. Yeah.
1: I had to quit. I had to quit. Um, except Eric Wareheim makes me laugh every single time he's on screen. Uh, Eric
0: Wareheim makes you laugh under all circumstances. No, I know. He's, it's he's kind hilarious. of like the
1: timidity. Eric's stick, but it works in the maybe this is the the funnier version of the comedy uh, is what it boils oh down boy. to but I, let me turn it on you guys what did you I, I'm obviously kind of gung-ho about this show but what did you think
3: I think I've only seen again the first seven of the ten but I can't think of anything else uh, that Netflix has made that is as good as this I think it's really I mean and am little, I forgetting
0: uh, and Kimmy Schmidt is I mean I haven't Kimmy, seen Master Kimmy is yet is good, but I good.
3: think this is much better um, Kimmy Schmidt's a better a, sitcom, maybe, but this is just right. its
1: own. This feels like what independent films that go to Sundance want to be and never yes. seem to achieve for some reason.
3: I think that's spot on. I think uh, it, it does so in different ways in every episode. Every I mean, it's it's filmmaking. It's legitimate filmmaking brought to a half hour comedy, which is something that you know I, this can't be true, but it feels sometimes like Louis pioneered, and this really takes uh, meets at that level. Um, I think it's hilarious. It's endearing. I think it's it's so smart in so many different ways without being overly overly labored in the things it wants to say about how we live now. Um, there's a very sort of pleasant lived-in vibe to it. I would caution anyone who was hearing patches describe it. You know, he's he's not wrong in talking about that. It's about these four friends, but really, I, I don't want to give you the impression that it feels like Sex in the City or like Girls or something that were friends. You know, it's really. Uh, follows its own thought Well, it's it's very much on
1: Aziz the whole time they, he kind of comes back to this congregation of friendship yeah, but yeah. what's interesting about the show is I think it starts in many places that other sitcoms would like oh we're going to observe race in 2015 and this kind of weird backwards you know he plays an actor in the show so in one episode he's dealing with like why do all Indian people get cast as the taxi driver and I feel like there's an entire episode of a sitcom to be, to be written just about that one kind of subject that one joke but this show is always escalating it's Mm -hmm. it's yes ending itself to use a comedy term i guess to go totally bonkers but in in a very realistic way like he just gets he dives into all these different places these parts of new york to kind of keep the show growing and evolving and snowballing
3: and its jokes are both like very uh broad but also incredibly niche in a way that doesn't even feel real. Like, there's a large uh, subplot devoted to Colin Salmon, who is an actor that you might recognize from some of the Resident Evil and James Bond films, but really uh, probably not. Probably, almost certainly couldn't name him. He loves um, Cinnabon, apparently. And oh my God, is he great in the show. And uh, and really, for me, the real standout so far is Noelle Wells, who was on one season of She's SNL so before lovable. she was kicked out. She's so <laughs> lovable. She's, like, I, I was cringing watching this one episode where they go to Nashville as a, on a date because I so was rooting for this couple already. I felt so invested in them that I was cringing at the thought that, you know, the inevitable going wrong in one way or the other as uh, there has to generate some conflict of course. Um, and, and it's also very heartbreaking and and, and moving and, and just by virtue of its intelligence and its sincerity uh and i think that sincerity is key to the show's success in that second episode they do these flashbacks about their respective fathers who they sort of um don't treat with respect on a day-to-day basis and it goes back to their childhoods as their immigrant experiences and them in their home countries and the trials and tribulations they endured in order to afford a better life for the children and it's really sort of moving in its own way uh I, i think the show is just phenomenal Dave, you're the
1: closest thing we have to someone who's on the outside here because we always get <laughs> criticized by listeners for being too New York, right? Not, and maybe not, but that like York, as but...
2: we listen to Ryan Silverstein's uh, "What My Contribution Is" to the show, I'm i I'm going to disappoint <laughs> you because uh, Aziz Ansari was one of the first comics whose reoccurring shows I would go to, the Upright Citizen Brigades where I was still in college at NYU when he was doing like Google experiments and uh, having competitions as comedian friends as to who could make the worst mixtape and then having to walk mm-hmm. through Parks uh, blasting it, uh, the loser would that have YouTube to. That
0: YouTube video is still out, still out there.
2: Yeah, all that stuff was was happening. And then uh, he got picked up by Parks and Rec. And, like, Tom Haverford and his stand-up specials uh, after that sort of changed his comedy to, like, what I guess now that I've seen him return back to, like, a New York-based comedy I would call, like, an L.A. Aziz. Where it's like, here's the time I went to an R. Kelly concert with a whole bunch of midgets, and I'm like, this is no longer what I always enjoyed about Aziz Ansari comedy, which was like, you are experiencing the world as he sees it, and it was always very interactive. So seeing him go back and Uh, do the tour to make his book and then that book come out and now this it feels like he's finally sort of back to what i think
3: he always did best please give a shout out to human giant let's not human giant was human Human giant
2: Giant was really really good and that's him and rob hubel like doing really good comedy but in terms of like one person's pure vision of a comedy i feel like a season sorry had like a period where he went and did parks and rec and lived a totally different lifestyle than what
1: I used to relate to him to, and now he's returning to that. That's, this is the guy who was in, he was in a Kanye video, am I correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or a Kanye and Jay-Z video. Yeah, but he's he s-
0: in um the one of the Watch the Throne videos. But he used
1: to like
2: live in like the East Village and like hoof it all the places that we hoof it now. And uh, he used to live. He s-
1: used to live a block building? from David.
3: Yeah, yeah he or, definitely like, did. A block from me? Yeah.
0: He used to live in South Carolina. What up?
3: Oh, maybe he's just stalking. Wait, fighting in the world. Yeah. Does he <laughs> live in all of our hometowns? <laughs> I mean, not in if my hometown. If you want to come on the show. <laughs> We're here Let's for make it you. Well,
2: right now he's like what, in a writers retreat with Jennifer Lawrence, Amy Schumer, and Chris Pratt. This
1: I know, he lives, yeah. it's such a weird life. I mean, Wait, he, is this a Twitter he information? He and flows. Yes, he was giving Jennifer Lawrence piggybacks just the other day on Instagram. Yeah. But the, and yet, and yet together. his show about New York seems so relatable. It's like it's uh, scary how accurate like hanging out at bars may, seems when I'm watching the show.
3: I think I may enjoy him more because I don't follow any of his social media. <laughs> Things that's just too much, and I think like sometimes the parts of the show that that great, if anything does, are the isesisms. You know, uh, right? Where it, it goes a little bit into sort of Randy territory. Yeah, like it, every word <laughs> has to be a, uh, and I think this is sort of a bit of self commentary. But like every word has to be a version of that word. It's like I can't even think of one example. There, there's
1: a there's head, a but. perfect example, which is like he's sitting in his apartment talking to a buddy of his. Um, Played by Ravi Patel and they're talking about pasta and Ravi goes to get the pasta and he's like no that's not pasta and I'm like yeah that's that's <laughs> very Aziz why are you saying it like that there's <laughs> which uh, I guess uh, you
0: guys are weirdly nitpicking something you all no like. no
1: <laughs> And what's funny is it used to annoy me more. Like I think his Parks and Rec character really got on my nerves because he was he became just that. Especially during the Entertainment 720 years, which that I'll definitely harp on that. But like in Master of None, when he slips into Aziz stand-up mode or Randy mode, it's kind of Randy. bizarre because everything else is so natural, and he's also. He's, he's very type A in all the things that he's done, including his stand-up, like he's, he's at the top of the world in his stand-up shows, and here he's not, like he's failing time and time again, and I, I tend to like this more than I have Louis, to be quite honest, and maybe because it's more relatable because of what he's going through, his age... But it's also not fantastical like Louis can be, you know, surreal. Um, This is always realistic. I don't think it gets too zany. I'm trying to think of something that is heightened realism and nothing comes to mind. They're making, he's an actor, so he's making silly movies and making silly commercials. But everything seems realistic. Then Eric Wareheim bounces in a a bounce castle and everything is right again. So,
3: (laughs) Randy.
1: Uh, um, yeah,
0: Master of None is really high on my list of things to watch I think, I mean, if we weren't recording this so late I would watch one tonight But yeah, I, the, the endless praise from so many different camps Has really persuaded me that it's a kind of
1: universal So I, I, w- I would wrap this up by saying Master of None, it's all on Netflix, watch it And, and tell us on Twitter or whatever uh, if, if you live outside New York Is this show any good? I want to know so <laughs> Get back to us This week marks the 25th anniversary of Home Alone. Oh God! And when I decided to bring this up for the podcast, I think what I told you all was, "We're old." Yeah, <laughs> You're we're old now.
2: We're all screaming with our hands to
1: our cheeks, but yeah, it's a podcast. Now,
0: now you can really shave. Yeah. Actually,
1: apparently, the poster to Home Alone had him saying, "Holy cow!" Is that right, or is I'm MD- what me? in a thought bubble saying, "Holy cow"? I don't remember that at all. I
0: don't remember that either. That sounds like a Bart Simpson thing.
1: Uh, <laughs> eat my shorts. Uh, so, Home Alone. The only thing I wanted to talk about in this mini segment, or is I believe Katie watches this movie like every Christmas, and pretty, she right,
0: pretty routine. Well, my sister watched it like on a loop for like. A literally a year when we were kids, like not just a Christmas movie. So it's a, it's on heavy rotation in my family. I don't so know. Is
1: is Home Alone a good movie, or are you pre- programmed of oh, Home Alone?
0: Yeah, that's a really hard question for me to answer. Like Bring I don't. It. I think I can tell that Home Alone one is better than Home Alone two.
1: Ooh. Now, New just, York, Lost in New York is fun. Lost in New York I mean, it's is a really great fun. New York movie. They're running yeah, around. it's, it's a
0: great New York movie. They're really filming in New York. Um, But I think that, like, Home Alone 1, like, has actual emotion to it. Like, I do feel, like, when she comes home and, like, he's got the house all clean after the robbers have come, like, I feel the emotion of that. There's, like, a real, like, heart of a family Christmas movie in that, which I think is what makes it pretty rewatchable. Um, And the pranks, like, I cannot overstate how much fun I had reenacting those pranks as a kid. Like, that was, like, what we played all what, the time. What
1: do you mean reenacting the, oh, the we pranks? Would, so we, you just no. throw paint cans at your parents? No,
0: we would, like, set up jacks at the top of a stair landing. <laughs> or like Jesus. We tried to hose down the steps to freeze it, but it was South Carolina, so it never
1: froze. What was that thing that he puts on the doorknob to make it heat up?
0: Uh, he, what is it's that? Like a, it's like a garage tool or something. I don't know, it's
1: like a water speed boiler.
0: Oh.
2: Whoa. Right, wow. What is that? How do you, have you guys? How did you get through? college? is this something you
0: have in northern climates. You
2: stick you stick it in like a thing of water and you turn it on. And it boils it super fast. Oh, wow. For like your teas and your I think I think it is, or I'm completely misremembering and someone will no, be like, that's it's not, obviously a it's a it's, loopy it, like, loopy yeah, he tool." He like
0: hooks it around the doorknob. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think you like stick
2: it you you stick it in like a jug of water and boil it.
1: Whoa! Wow. I was gonna say I need to check my privilege, so I understood that. But then again. Um Kevin McAllister's family they're Super like billionaires. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. No, was, my
0: mom always tells me how she thought the decor of that house was like the best thing in the world, which is really funny now to like look back at it cuz it, that house looks so crazy <laughs> I think that dated. Means your mom
1: is basic. I think that means
0: stuff. well no my mom was in 1990, my mom was uh, had the exact aspirations right, I guess that she wanted to live in the movie house.
1: Dave, so I fun. feel like you have very serious thoughts on Home Alone. Or I was maybe reading just something the,
2: uh, about how it's like the perfect horror primer for like a young horror fan, and it's totally mm. right. Like, it has all the beats that you would find in, like, a home invasion film. You have the creepy guy spreading salt, and they uh, sort of do a whole bunch of classic horror angles on him, and uh, someone was writing online that it even has, like, a certain, like, a shower scene, but it's just, everything's used for comedy. But it's uh, basically the beats of a horror film, uh, because that's sort of what it would be like in actuality, if the reality was you were having your home invaded while your parents weren't there, that's yeah, a, you know, that's a you know, take.
1: you know, Home Alone has made an impact when uh, people who see Skyfall reference <laughs> Home Alone instead of like Sam Peck and Paul movies, yeah. but so it is. And da- David, what do you think? Home Alone standing the test of time.
3: I mean, I haven't seen Home Alone since <laughs> I was Kevin McAllister's age, but uh, really, wow. I, I thought that it was like it's on so TV it's- every year, oh, yeah, every minute. I know. I, I thought it was like Citizen Kane when I saw it. So, like, uh, I'll always think of.
2: Uh, they throw away the plane cake. ticket at the beginning when he spills the soda. <laughs> oh, yeah. Every
3: year always always that comes
0: up is something you never noticed before.
3: I'll always treasure uh, Home Alone. For, wait, would they throw it away on purpose? No, no, you see it, Yeah, you see away.
0: it get thrown in the garbage uh,
2: and the milk all over the table. <laughs> um, it was Citizen Kane. You were right.
3: <laughs> the uh, yeah, the the oh, I love Home Alone for allowing me to go over the rest of my life going Kevin, <laughs> and things of that nature. Uh, the Best line John Hughes ever wrote, or actually, yeah,
0: no? The best one is when I grow up and get married, I'm living alone. Oh fair.
3: <laughs> Oh, no, it's um, the best line. So whatever, I I am not offended by Home Alone. Um, and, and I like the bird lady from the second one. I don't I like that Donald Trump to comes man. off well in his in his cameo. Oh God, um, I
0: forgot about. that. But
3: those. who hasn't wanted to stay in the Plaza as a kid? Oh yeah um, Now
1: you're talking about Home Alone too, and you're leaning. Yep. I, no, I know. I was. I segwayed. Wow! Wait,
0: now for segment three, all about Home Alone. 2.
1: Home Alone Two, Lost <laughs> in New York. You know, my uncle did the poster for that movie. What? And my name is you in it. was bragging those. about your uncle? Wait, the poster what? For Wait, the your Home name's on the poster hey, for Home Alone Two? It's all I got. It's all I got going. Actually, let me say something nice about Home Alone.
0: Hang on, I'm looking this up right now. Where's your name on the poster? Oh, it's for Home in Alone microscopic
1: 2? in one of the windows. You can't see it. Oh my but, God. but let me end this segment by saying Home Alone is a very special movie to me because my mother looks like Catherine O'Hara. And I my always, mom kind of looks like Catherine O'Hara. Our, all of our mothers are Catherine O'Hara. I don't think my mother does look like Catherine O'Hara. Um, I
3: definitely think my mom looks like Catherine O'Hara, especially with that haircut. I always have. Yes. Always. There's something about her in this movie that's
1: like she is the perfect – she makes the whole movie work even when she's not there with Kevin or whatever it's it's Catherine O'Hara who makes this whole movie work so to Catherine O'Hara thank you for this timeless classic I what
0: definitely if- see that one of the windows in the Empire State Building <laughs> in the Home Alone 2 poster has what looks like a little bit of writing in it and I My can't name. read it okay, I
2: melt a, I'm steel eBaying beer. theater standee <laughs> Home Alone somebody will find it
1: So I believe this week—I might be wrong about this—but I'm pretty sure this week uh, it sees the release of *Entertainment*, the new film from Rick Alverson. Dave. Why? <laughs> All right. I, m- I must be correct because you are now quoting Neil Hamburger, uh, a.k.a. Greg Turkington, who who wrote this movie, I believe, with Rick Alverson. Who has a, he's taken his character, Neil Hamburger, already a provocation in some ways, kind of lampooning um, lounge lizard stand up comedians who tell awful jokes. And he tells the worst uh, jokes imaginable. Um, I, I I'm, I'll have to look up some of them and just scatter them throughout this segment because they are truly awful uh and but now now we have entertainment, which takes this character, not quite an SLNL movie, perhaps, but puts him on a road trip through the American Southwest, through the worst clubs imaginable, the worst restaurants. He's just he's broken, he's disgusting, he has no career, the American dream has failed him. He's he's talking to his estranged daughter on the phone, maybe. Who knows what the fuck is really up with this guy. He, this, there's a few uh, uh, wires crossed and a few nuts and bolts missing. This guy is broken, um, but he's you know sticking to his comedian lifestyle anyway. And throughout this journey, uh, Rick Alverson, the filmmaker behind the comedy, my favorite movie from 2012. Uh, just another disgusting movie about Brooklyn hipsterism, uh, and and what it is to be youth, and what it is to be uh, cynical for for laughs, and you know what what is the the state of of comedy in this era? Now now he's tackling entertainment, what it is to entertain. American people, or what it means to, uh, I don't know, have a life in the entertainment world uh, when you're not important at all. It's disgusting. And I loved it. I mean, I really enjoyed entertainment quite a bit. And it makes you feel bad. It's just like a depressing, the malaise of the s- Southwest. It's filmed in this gorgeous widescreen. And by gorgeous, I mean full of greens and browns and it just looks awful, and it's designed to make you feel bad. Now, I have talked to Rick Alvarez and Greg Turkington about this movie uh, for Grantland way back when, R.I.P. Uh, mm, and that they was like two
3: jobs ago. <laughs> yeah, that
1: was a long time ago. Um, <laughs> that's really funny, <laughs> uh, but they they you know I, I would bring up the word provocateur. Perhaps you know is this movie designed to make people feel bad? No, no, this is just about something to call them to make a movie about. You know, just riling people up might be away from their "quote unquote" agenda or something like that. But I don't know. This for me, this movie is definitely about making us feel something through provocation. And I want to bring this up into a larger conversation with you guys about what it might mean to to be a provocateur, to have provocative films. Um, Why are they? Why do they exist? Why do we label them provocative in that way?
0: I mean, wait. So you're talking about a whole bunch of different kinds of films.
1: Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I think we span dramas and we span comedies but for some reason we can lump all these people into quote unquote, provocatorship um, and why why do we do that and is it is it our defense mechanism against these films is it or is it um, an argument for why they exist and why we can stomach certain things but perhaps not others you know I is human of... centipede uh, in the same circle as entertainment or is in the same of... circle as uh, gasper Noe or 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 john waters
3: I got Listening to you describe it now, it makes me think that there's something to the idea of putting some distance between us and the subjects that these films that we label as provocative by provocateurs are, are creating. I think that um, it is rather than look at Antichrist and think like, oh, here is a uh, reasonable reflection about what it is to be human and grieving and married and everything else uh, made by a reasonable human. <laughs> it's much easier to grapple with and, and give some remove to yourself from, if you say, Oh, this was made by uh, a crazy man who uh, sympathizes with Hitler at press conferences and has fuck right, tattooed on his entire Conversation and, I can, right? Right. I mean, that was for a different film, but the, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that it definitely helps to orient people in regards to works that are that challenging and, uh, and I think that there's like a, a norm of behavior. There's, there's a window of behavior. There's actually – I was reading something about this recently that I can't place it all right now. That's sort of about the, uh, the, the range of normal human behavior, some sort of scale anyway. Um, and we like to define things in relation to it. And when something like – you know, when something exists that's that far out of it, it's easier to label it that way. And of course, artists take advantage of that. I think when you have less successful – uh, filmmakers who are maybe more successful provocateurs, or like people like Gaspar Noé, uh, who is not a twelfth of the filmmaker that Lars von Trier is, but uh, he knows that oh, to push. You yes. know, to push some buttons. Um, I think uh, you know they, they know that if they make a movie where somebody ejaculates onto a camera, uh, it's a 3D film, then um, that's going to be labeled as provocative and it's going to you know tap into that.
2: I've actually seen that genre. before.
3: Wow. You've seen uh, you've seen ejaculate from at
2: your camera. camera. Yeah, camera
3: does not count, Dave. <laughs> it, was,
2: it was it was a it was a three D porn film from the seventies about uh, lollipops that were accidentally sent through the mail. But yeah, that's... see, Gaspar
3: Noe's films are derivative. I mean, like, <laughs> he, he would admit that though. He well, but admit,
2: it, yeah. I think there's the interesting thing about provocateur is that it's a label that I think when it's applied to somebody that when I'm like circling a film and they're like, well, this is like a provocateur film by like an artist, uh, that makes me, I mean, I, I approach it with some sort of uh guard up because I don't necessarily want to be poked in a raw spot, but it does sort of give me a uh, permission to look for Uh, I guess like outsized meanings or interpretations because usually when one of these people like finds something that really works uh, cinematically, it isn't just like a random choice, but it ends up like the theme or the story or something ends up uh, justifying the really ridiculous thing they do to sort of draw you into it. But then it could also be done wrong, but then you just don't call them provocateurs. You call them things like assholes or whatnot. (laughs)
0: I was. I'm thinking that I'm coming across a unified theory of what I like in a provocateur. Thinking about how entertainment sounds like a nightmare to me, and in no way do I want to see it at all. Uh, but I like John Waters. Like even when I don't really like his movies, I like his existence, and I feel like you should. You ought to. And like. And I think this applies to Lars von Trier, too. You ought to take a joy in your ability to provoke people. You ought to, like, and even if the movie isn't joyful, like, Melancholia is not a joyful movie at all. But I think Lars von Trier has a pleasure in being able to uh, kind of poke people in that way. And John Waters, I think, really
3: exemplifies that. David
0: Lynch does that sometimes, too.
3: So you do like Lars von Trier?
0: I do like Lars Venture. I don't like everything that Lars Venture does, but I like his, I I think if you're going to be a provocateur, I think you got to kind of run with it and make that part of your thing and enjoy it a little bit. And the idea entertainment seems to me like it's kind of not like wallowing in this pain and trying to make it funny that I just can't, I can't wrap my head around it
1: about how do
3: you think that there is, I mean, I don't think you're wrong. I think that there are very different kinds of provocateurs. I think that you have correctly assessed entertainment, which I enjoyed very much uh without seeing it and I would recommend, based on what you said and what I know of you, that you not see it. Yeah. I don't do, think that you does would like not it. seem like my thing uh, but do you think there is a way that there are films that you like or that you can conceive of them that uh do go out of the way to punish the audience and sort of rub their faces in uh in these lessons they want to impart that you could enjoy, that you could find value in?
0: Yeah, so I had um I had a really big problem with uh, Michael Haneke's Funny Games. I saw the American or the English language remake of it, and it really made me mad, and because it did a lot of that kind of rubbing your nose in it. But then, like, I really like The White Ribbon, which I think does a lot of similar things, just in a really different way. And I'm I'm not going to eloquently say the difference between those things, but I, I do think there is a way to do it that is less well, punishing would, and more kind of
1: well. I would I would argue that The White Ribbon is probably his least. Uh, Provocative in that way, film. I mean, it's dealing with kids being naturally evil. So there, there's something there that uh, will unnerve the weak. Um, <laughs> but I was just describing someone, uh, one of Haneke's early films, The Seventh Continent, which I believe you can watch on Snag Film for free if you're interested. But we were talking, I don't know why we were talking about this. Oh, I think because in the actual news recently, a family like committed suicide all together and I was like oh you should watch this great film about this exact topic the seventh continent it's about a film that you know a family that decided well there's no reason to live so they kill their kids and they kill themselves and they destroy everything in their house beforehand it's great it's actually a really really good movie Um, and you can watch for free but like why would you watch that movie on purpose Mm -hmm. Uh, I often think of that and, and it's because you trust Michael Haneke right like I didn't get there first I definitely you know uh funny games was my first michael haneke film you know saw cachet saw time of the wolf uh piano teacher code unknown you know i had to step back and well, like seventh, i got to seven that was his first him. movie
3: so no, right if he needed if he needed people to trust him uh and maybe he did <laughs> that was uh poor planning on his part
1: no no you're absolutely right i mean it, it he He only has a career because someone saw Seventh of the continent early enough and and invested in what he could do and what he could conjure up. you're absolutely right. I didn't get there myself um but like so then why you know why are we afraid? Why are people scared to invest in that way i mean we we just have this you know what I think of a lot and and I brought this up in our pre conversation was t v does not do ship. there's nothing on television that dares to piss you off i don't think really um but music seems to get away with it uh noise mm. music i find very interesting people who want to listen to noise um or even you know certain types of metal music i don't find it uh, enjoyable it's very harsh especially when it's you know heavily powered industrial music that kind of thing why do people want to listen to that it doesn't sound good um I don't know, maybe some of you have, uh, have have anecdotal evidence of this, but, like, it's the same thinking, right? We just want to punish ourselves.
2: I mean... And only
1: th- movies can do it in a certain way.
2: I guess. I would say that, like... <laughs> it's not so much about punishment and the things that you're talking about, like experimental music or, like, noise music or something like that, as much as, like, looking at something that's really, like, visually assaulting. I don't think it's necessarily about punishment but it's about like if you want to talk about like serious shit but you have to do it through this pop art that can be peanuts the movie then you have to communicate that you're talking about serious shit and you're in the the realm of of serious shit so it's like i may not i I may love uh what is it gummo and not agree with trash humpers but harmony corinne you yeah, can you know convince me that serious shit is being talked about can you see a it's... difference
1: between those two like can you see a difference between just trying to be provocative and damaging the audience and and something that's more artistic that still feels punishing in that way uh, anybody I'm really
0: i'm trying to think of like the most punishing movie that i've liked that doesn't feel like it's coming from someone who's like really like poking you in the nose as they I mean, like Twelve Years a Slave, I guess, kind of qualifies as that. That movie, that movie, is pretty punishing, but also made. I would
1: argue that movie is definitely just out to be provocative. It's as someone yeah. doesn't really like it. It's just about the punishment
0: for me. Uh, but I I, that's sort of a troll catches. comment.
1: I, yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't think it's just think about the punishment like the, at all. The which is Passion really great. of the Christ,
3: which oh. is like Twelve Years a Slave with every uh, redeeming job. quality taken out. Yeah, um, like that's a real piece of shit, and that uh, that really that that movie. This is going out a tangent, but that movie like ruined internet a certain strain of internet film criticism for me because uh, I just remember those that button numathon screening where everyone at Ain't It Cool News lost their mind for that movie and because Mel Gibson was there and they showed the movie and I'm being very cynical right now, but uh, and a lot of those are people that you know at least in some cases are people that I continue to respect or maybe even respect more now than I did then, but uh, fuck that movie forever. Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> so,
0: well, so. The a movie that I haven't seen that I feel like has this reputation is Solo, mm-hmm. which yes. I'm pretty sure I will never see because of the way that it's been described as so much punishment does it fit this bill?
3: Katie Solo, I mean yeah I think Pasolini uh, without Pasolini there's no Haneke, there's no Lars von Trier. I think that he earned that distinction and then some and uh, Solo, in a very different way from like in the realm of the senses is one of those movies that does not age in terms of how um, upsetting it is. Uh, there's no amount of time that can go on where we reach a point where we're just like, oh, please, audiences were being prude back then. Uh, Sala will always be deeply, deeply disturbing. And, and it's because it's trying to be a uh, representation of fascism on screen, of a certain type of fascism. And um, it, it and fascism is also sort of unchanging, even though the particulars uh, are particular to whatever uh, circumstances happen. But I think that um, that that is a perfect example and one that uh, will literally rub your face in shit. To uh, oh, <laughs> nope, what I isn't this the part where Dave talks about Serbian film or? Please, I many episodes where Dave film. talks about Serbian film.
2: I mean, it's been like a year since I've talked about Serbian
3: <laughs> film. It, it can't be. It always feels like it was yesterday.
2: And hmm. I mean, that that's an interesting movie in the sense that it's you know it's I don't know a a pun, I guess about government and war that's taken very literally to be about rape and you just have to kind of, like, put up with that movie. Uh, But I think that in terms of, like, you know, it's better than uh, historical recounting to uh, people, I guess, universally because it just makes you feel bad. It makes you feel like the movie is repressing you for, like, daring to see it. And that's kind of the point of it, which is why I've defended Serbian film like all the time. But if we want to talk about like things that our, our listeners can meet us halfway on, uh, the the Tom Green ball cancer special. Huh. Does anybody remember that?
0: I remember just saying, yes. I don't think got, I watched it. Though. That was
2: that's like one of the most brilliant pieces of television that I've been alive to watch. Like while it was happening, but that wasn't
1: that. Like that didn't push that many buttons. That wasn't well, it was because that wasn't it, disgusting. It was just well, I mean, they kind showed of the entire. Sir, they for him.
2: they showed the entire. It was because it happened at the time in Tom Green's career that MTV allowed them to like show the entire surgery and like bring mm-hmm. in Drew Barrymore and his family and like make them be filmed right before he goes under and like trying to make jokes. And it seemed like. Uh, Tom Green had an artfulness about his provocateurship or he was earlier than jackass enough that I like his sweet spot will always be the sweet spot of that type of humor for me to like skate video. I'm going to do something ridiculous just to get a rise out of people because I kind of feel like he understood that up until he made his movie.
1: I do. I do feel like bringing up jackass is important to this conversation because of what modern, provocatorship in in comedy especially can be and you know Jackass had a whole uh retrospective i think that might be the wrong word or the just just a moment at the Museum of Modern Art here in New York uh, leading up to Jackass 3D i believe um you know they were celebrated as artists and i wonder if any of you guys would agree with that if if what they do is a form of provocatorship and if that's why it's art in some way yeah
3: uh, yeah, why not? Who am I to say that's not art?
0: <laughs> and I like Jackass, and I think I'm just building up my theory that if you take joy in your provocatorship, I will enjoy your work. Because Jackass is fun because those idiots are having a really good time. So, so who's doing it? Who's doing
1: it now? Like who's who carries the torch? Does it feel a Jackass or a, well, not necessarily Jackass, but do we feel like provocatorship? There's an awareness. There's a self-awareness to this, like because we now have provocateur as a thing that people are trying to own it. So I I think I mentioned this earlier that TV can't really accomplish this for some reason. If you're going to get people to come back week to week, especially in our mainstream American television, you can't really do it. I think uh, other nations have figured this out. Clown would be an amazing reference there, I think. And and the film that they created, you know, that is disgusting. And maybe Curb uh, in a way is – does this for american i think television. there's probably
0: a lot of places on youtube that are doing it um that i maybe
1: don't necessarily know about
0: that, but that but really youtube can like only go so far because
1: it. it can't be that graphic
0: i will okay fine then on Vimeo. red like, too so, like, i guess so well i mean the fact that like john waters is basically retired because his version of uh provocation is is extinct because there's so much you know shit well, everywhere
1: say, or, or i mean I know Dave is an American Horror Story watcher, so maybe Ryan Murphy is the holdout here. But he also seems very self-aware of him trying to push buttons. I've been watching Scream Queens as well, which I find very
3: funny. I um, have to you, they, they scrapped their whole thing for the – oh, no. That was the Scream show. Sorry. Scream, yeah. Scream show. If you're invested in that, you've officially wasted your time. Really? A lot of people were. Oh, I, they, uh, the next what did season, they do? They fired the showrunner. The next season is going to potentially be an anthology format.
1: Oh, horrible. Uh, Well, uh, who knows? Maybe that's a good thing. I didn't watch it. I'm talking about Scream Queens, the Ryan Murphy show with uh, Emma Roberts and just heinous, heinous individuals, you know, murdering each other and laughing at it. Uh, I find it hysterical. It is very odd Um, and nothing like American Horror Story. But that is all about just being, you know, there's so many racist remarks, so many misogynistic and and just horrible people. Um, And you're supposed to laugh. And you know what? I do laugh uh and ryan murphy kind of gets it but i think american horror story is his stab at just really driving people up a wall uh, you know i think in the beginning of this season there was this whole debacle about uh, a rape scene dave what am, am i getting that right yeah there was a rape scene uh what was the, what was the deal with that that was just meant to like an addiction create a demon on the internet. who nice wears you.
2: a drill bit as a dildo uh you, rapes a heroin
1: addict. Of course.
0: Of course that that happened. happened.
1: Yeah, so Ryan Murphy seems to be the purveyor of that. But again, (laughs) is self-awareness the end of of true provocateurship? I would guess so. And maybe this is Gaspar Noe's problem too, as David mentioned. Uh,
2: I think we want more uh, professional provocateurs because what the internet has done is made this all – much more dangerous because you could find the worst things without context. And that's like the only thing that's positive out of having any of these experiences. It's like I don't want to, you know, necessarily sit down and rewatch a Serbian film. But, you know, if I do, I at least know I'm having some sort of curated experience where it's like I could search like real life murder videos and just like fall into a weird web hole. And uh, that's like a real life uh, provocateur. Sadness. Or
0: even two girls, one cup, which is like, which is back the,
1: online. I should say I've been oh, showing wow. people it. I'm, it's very exciting.
0: What is wrong with you? you I know. know I'm you
1: a didn't... bad person to bring to a bar. <laughs> who
2: did you find that missed it the first time around children oh no I, uh, they didn't miss it they just forgot i
0: wikipedia'd it. it and got the description so i never had to watch it really yeah
1: now we have it to do our oh mini God. segment next never, week we'll just be showing you i'm never video.
0: setting foot in a bar with you again <laughs> i have a
1: good
2: i have a good video with uh with eels for you katie baby oh no, you know,
1: no. oh no it's <laughs> old boy to shame those japanese um, they come up with some things Well, Dave, I hope you get a chance this holiday season to watch a Serbian film with your family because it's the season. Um, While
2: David rewatches Home Alone. That Red Band trailer has a great (laughs) uh, soundtrack that still gets stuck in my head. It's Uh, just the trailer
1: soundtrack. I I should end this segment by telling a a Neil Hamburger joke. So what's the worst part about being gang raped by Crosby, Stills, and Nash? (laughs) I know, I know. David. No Young. That's right. No Young. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that does it for today's Fighting in the Warm Room. We will be back on Friday with the review of By the Sea, By the Sea. That's not, that's not really... Actually, that song is not even in the movie, which is really a shame. Um, we're going <laughs> to review By the Sea. It has Angelina and Brad in it. In uh, the meantime, tell the people who you are.
1: I am Matt Patches. I am the entertainment editor of Thrillist.com. That's a new thing. Uh, hey. But I'm still on Twitter at Mr. Patches. Oh, yeah. Everyone should follow Thrillist Entertainment at Thrillist Ent, which is not uh, a reference. Ent moot. Range. My second yeah. most favorite moot. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, we have a website, fightinginthewarroom.com, where you can uh, leave comments, share articles, tell us if you like Home Alone, tell us if we're uh, in a New York bubble for liking Master of None, all sorts of things, fightinginthewarroom.com.
3: I'm David Ehrlich. I'm a staff writer at Rolling Stone. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich. You can find all of us, all of us, including you, potentially, on Facebook, (laughs) Room.
2: I'm Dave Gonzalez, I spell my first name D-A-7-E on Twitter where you can find my hilarious tweets about uh, Star Wars usually Uh, I also do a podcast called The Thought Bubble we're going to be reading a comic called Velvet it's about a female spy because uh, we forgot Spectre wasn't this week, Uh, but it's going to be super fun Uh, you should check it out
0: for uh, anyone who is disappointed in Spectre I guess only have this to look forward
2: to yeah, comics, it's much more fun than Spectre
0: sure Uh, I'm Katie Rich. I'm at vanityfair.com, and I'm talking about Oscars on Little Gold Men still. You should listen to that podcast. It's a good time. Uh, And you can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K A T E Y R I C H, and all of us on Twitter at F I T W R. Well, we'll be talking to you, talking to each other, and then uh, you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was
2: In honor of By the Sea, what real life couple should have made a movie together? Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you
0: on Friday.
1: Y'all come to man across the field, filling up just like an automobile, for his men,
3: they have a mercy on him.